You're listening to Members of the Jury, the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice, where the passion, players, and consequences are real. Each episode, we examine current events happening in the system. From the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform, we bring those stories here to you, the members of the jury, because we aren't afraid to take it to the box. Welcome to Members of the Jury, in our first ever episode. I truly appreciate each and every listener who's decided to tune in. I'll be the host of the show. My name is Lucas Hursty. I'm currently an attorney working as a public defender, and I'm also a mock trial professor. And I absolutely love the art of debate and persuasion. The goal of this show is to provide our audience with knowledge and entertainment, from learning new laws and policy in regards to reform, to hearing the jaw-dropping facts of true crime stories. So everyone, please join me and rise for the members of the jury. Now, I know one of the first questions that you're asking yourself is what does take it to the box mean? You see, in my field, when myself and the opposing party can't come to an agreement or have completely opposite views, there's only one solution, to take it to the box. We assert the right to go to trial via the Sixth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. The right that says you have a right to air out the facts of your case in front of a jury of 12 of your peers. While at trial, you would have the right to remain silent and not incriminate yourself, that your attorney can do all of the talking for you. Included in that right is the right to have your attorney confront or cross-examine any witness against you to poke holes in that witness's story or highlight a lack of credibility that that witness may have. You also, you also have the right to produce your own evidence, your own witnesses, or your own testimony that may help exonerate you or prove your innocence. Currently, in the United States, less than... of all cases actually go to trial. But for me, I get to live and see them take place every single day. And it's because of that that I've got to see its beauty in action. Where two two opposing parties meet with conflicting views, present their best arguments to a committee of their peers, and have a winner declared. It's such a beautiful art form, and it's something that I apply now in theory to my everyday life life. And so I'm so happy that for this first episode, we were able to bring to you an interview with an actual trial attorney, someone who's recently asserted that Sixth Amendment right and took their matter to the box. So let's get into the interview. Everyone join me in welcoming Jessica to the show. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start with just doing a brief introduction and uh, to our listeners and letting them know what it is that you do. As you said, my name is Jessica and I am an attorney. Specifically, I am a defense attorney and more specifically, I am a public defender. And as a public defender, how does that kind of differentiate you from, you know, what you said, uh, a criminal defense attorney? So I, I am a criminal defense attorney, but there are, you know, us public defenders and then there are private attorneys. The difference is that private attorneys are paid by the accused in order to be represented, whereas a public defender, um, we are paid by the county, so we don't charge the clients anything. That's why we represent, you know, 
when, when cops tell you, you have the right to an attorney, even if you can't afford one, that is us. We do not charge our client. So that's the difference between a public defender and a private attorney. Now, earlier in the show, I, I, I talked about how there's only 5% of all cases actually go to jury trial and how as a public defender, we're able to see actually quite a few of those 5% cases going to trial. Would you agree with that that uh, take? I would. I do agree with the fact that we see a lot of cases that go to trial based on the fact that I feel like a lot of people in general don't know a lot about their constitutional right to trial. And once somebody takes the time to explain that to them and, you know, explain why it's important and the facts of their case, I think they're more prone to exercise that constitutional right. And in your experience as a defense attorney and and public defender, have you had the privilege of having your clients exercise that right to go to trial? I have. I've been lucky enough to have clients who made the decision to go to trial where I have represented them at that trial. Well, let's let's go ahead and dive in a little bit into one of those experiences, if you don't mind. Sure. So why don't you go ahead and just kind of give us a little bit of background about the case and kind of the overall charge or charges that that led to the jury trial? So my most recent trial was a case um, where my client was accused of illegally dumping. And what that means is, you know, it's illegal for someone to dump their waste, let it be trash or whatever it may be, in some sort of public place for public safety. Those were the charges against my client. I did explain the charges to him and he immediately said, you know, what I had was not waste and I'm taking it to trial. So just let's back up a little bit. How, how did he come to get charged with legally or unlawfully, you know, being waste? So from the beginning of the facts, um, he was parked in an area where an officer believed he was parked illegally. So the officer came up to question my client. My client was in an RV. So that is the, the issue is whether his RV was dumping water that was waste water as opposed to clean water or fresh water. When the officer approached to question my client, he then saw what he believed to be waste water coming from the RV. He, you know, took some pictures. My client did tell him at the scene that it was not waste water and it was fresh water. Um, and he still got a ticket for it. And when you say ticket, what what does that kind of entail? Was he actually booked in, in into custody or just kind of given a citation and released? Yeah, so he was just given a ticket, basically a written citation with the date to appear in court. So he was not arrested or booked into custody. It's just a promise that you go to court at some point in the future. Now, when someone's given a ticket and it's a misdemeanor, does that necessarily change the seriousness of the case, even though they weren't necessarily taken into custody? No. So whether they're booked into custody at the time or whether they're cited and released, if you're charged with a misdemeanor, it has the same effect as any other misdemeanor, whether you were booked in or not. Okay. And and what kind of punishment does one who's charged with the misdemeanor generally face? Anywhere um, up to six months in custody. Sometimes it's possibly a year in custody. The max is a year in custody. And fines up to a thousand dollars. And those were the consequences that your client was facing in this case. That's correct. He was. 
So your client elected to to go to trial. What? How does that start then? What's what's the process of uh, after someone elects to assert their right to go to trial? Well, then that's when we begin our trial prep with, you know, doing some investigation, writing a couple of motions, planning what witnesses, if any, you're going to call at trial and preparing to cross-examine the prosecution's witnesses. And in this case, was there uh, investigation that was done on your behalf? There was. So we were initially provided with some photos of what the off- that the officer took where he believed it was, you know, the, the wastewater. Um, I took those to my client. We had a long conversation about it. He drew me pictures. I'm not an RV expert. So I had to go and do my own research about, you know, RVs and get myself as familiar as possible so that I can best represent my client in this case. I learned about RVs. I learned the difference between you know, gray water, fresh water, black water. I learned the ins and outs of my client's RV with regard to where the pipes lead, what water goes to where, um, and how and when and where he does release the waste from his RV. So with my client's pictures and the research I did, I felt very comfortable with RVs enough to represent this particular client. And so after the investigation part was done leading up to trial, does trial start next or what was next that happened? So you do go to, you answer up for trial. What that means is that you get sent to a trial department where your trial is going to be heard. Um, you do first start off with some motions, depending on the facts of your case. There are several motions that can be brought. Those are called pre-trial motions. Once those are decided, you start your trial at the very beginning with picking a jury. And how does one go about picking a jury? You know, personally for me, picking a jury is literally the scariest part of trial for me. It's a lot of people aren't comfortable with public speaking or speaking in front of crowds. And that's the moment you have with picking a jury. We call it voir dire. And what that means is you get to ask questions of people and decide if you want to pick them or you want them on your jury or not. So what happens is that the prosecution asks the potential jurors questions, the defense attorney will then ask questions and the judge has their own questions to ask to see if that juror is right for these particular facts in this particular case. I always find voir dire to be also one of the toughest parts of the trial because I feel that like when you're starting the trial, one of the first things you're doing is potentially putting all of the potential jurors on trial. Uh, you know, it, it really is almost like a cross-examination from, you know, all sides, uh, from the prosecutor, from the defense, and, and from the judge. And, and, you know, what's been your experience like in kind of how jurors, uh, how receptive are they to that process? You know, this all depends on the attorney. A lot of jurors, you know, there's a saying with a lot of attorneys that voir dire is like pulling teeth because it's so hard to get, you know, it's a room of strangers and I have to make them comfortable enough to want to open up and share not only with me, but with everybody else in that room. We ask if they've committed any crimes before, what those crimes were, when they were, if they're, if they've been victims of crime. A lot of people think those are very personal questions and If you ask in general, they may raise their hand or say yes, but you're not going to know. Maybe they were charged with the same or similar crime to your case. You need to know those things to know if this is the right case for that juror. So to talk about the particulars of their facts, of their experiences, you have to 
call on them one by one and ask them some very specific questions to get what you want. And then at the end of the questioning process of the voir dire, what's kind of the process then that the attorneys in the course do to just actually finalize the the list of jurors who ultimately make it to the box? So there's what we call peremptory challenges. Each attorney gets six opportunities to take someone that's currently sitting in the jury box out and bring a new juror in. Either when both sides are out of challenges or if both sides are happy with the 12 people in the jury box, then you let the court know that everybody's ready with the jury that is there and they get sworn in as the jurors for that trial. Now, I know there's generally kind of two approaches to the voir dire process. You know, there's the method of kind of selecting the best jurors for you. And there's also a mess method of deselecting the worst jurors potentially for you. In, in your most recent case, was there a method that you preferred uh, one over the other? You know, I, I personally feel like I do a little bit of both depending on what the juror is saying. In that moment, I have to decide if this juror is going to be unfavorable to me because of maybe their experiences, then I'm deselecting. I don't want them on my jury. But if I know that someone in the jury can relate somehow to either my client or the facts of my case, I want them to sit on the jury and I want to keep them. My practice is always, I let my clients be a part of everything, right? At the end of the day, it's their trial. And so I tell my clients, just look at them, listen to their answers, they have their own notebook and their own pen. And I say, if there's somebody that you just don't think is right for this trial to judge you of these facts, let me know. And based on, you know, what, what the clients want, the conversations I have with them about certain jurors, that's how I also decide who sits on my jury. And, and during this four year process, was there any one particular fact that you were hoping some of the jurors maybe did or didn't have a part of their background? I did. It was one thing and it was very, very difficult for me. And it sounds like something so easy. It was whether or not I wanted people who had RVs and knew about them and had that experience or people who did not. And the theory behind that to both sides is, do I want someone who completely understands RVs and would believe my facts or do I want someone who doesn't know enough about RVs to trust what we're saying and believe them at face value? And that was an issue I had with determining what jurors I wanted. And what was your final decision? Were you keeping people who had RV backgrounds or were you kicking those people? I ultimately ended up asking my, my client what he wanted. And I said, look, there's some people with RVs, some not in the jury box. What do you want? Would you prefer people with more knowledge or with less knowledge? And because he was so adamant about the truth, he was like, no, I need people that know RVs and have RVs because I think they'll realize what I'm saying is true. And that's what I did. I kept two people with RVs on my jury. Nice. I think it's always best. I think the thing about jur picking a jury is just kind of the overall gut feeling that you have at the end of it. And, you know, if you set out that goal and then accomplishment, I'm sure I'm sure you felt pretty good at least going forward with that jury. So absolutely. And so after you have that jury finalized, what what's then does the trial begin after that part after that phase? It does. The um, judge lets us do what's called an opening statement. The prosecution, because they have the burden, always goes first. 
So they give their story and their side of the facts. And then I would go up and give my story of the facts. And after opening statement, that's when the prosecution begins what we call their case in chief. So they put on all of their evidence and all of their witnesses. And I just want to back up real briefly, going back to the opening statement. In this case, did you find yourself giving the members of a jury uh, a pretty detailed laid out opening statement or kind of a more reserved, uh, more broader approach? Honestly, this case, you know, the, the whole reason we went to trial is because that's what my client wanted. That was his right. He's the one accused of a crime. And I always tell my clients, you are my boss. They tell me what they want, right? What if they need their voice to be heard in trial, but don't want to take the stand, I have to be that voice for them. Um, I have to get their story across the way they want me to get their story across. And my client was so adamant about the facts and he was adamant about what happened. And I trusted him. And I told the jurors very detailed how things happened according to my client, because that is our story as we believe to be true. And I needed the jurors to hear that from us. So I would say that my opening in this case was very detailed because we were confident in the facts. And so then after the opening statements, you had indicated that the prosecution basically got to go first and put on all of the evidence that they have to try to prove their case. In this case, did they have a plethora or substantial amount of evidence that they that they put on? They did not. All they had was one witness, um, which was the officer in this case. And there was no um, expert. You know, no one tested the water. They didn't get a sample of the water. So it was a very simple one witness case. And so it was basically a he said versus she said. It was a he said, he said. But yes, it was uh, the officer's word against my client's word. Where there was a maximum consequence of a year in jail and up to $1,000 in fine. That's correct. Jessica, how on earth did you overcome that burden of having to basically disprove an officer? You know, that's a very, very hard part of trial as well. It starts in voir dire. Again, that's why it's so scary. You have to determine if the jurors are going to automatically believe an officer over your client or any other witness who isn't an expert just because of their position as a police officer. And I've learned that attorneys have different tactics when they talk to officers, when they're on the stand, you either are very gentle with them. You know, you don't want to hurt their ego and you want them to feel very comfortable and other people go in there and like, look, I want you to tell the truth because I don't believe what you wrote in this report. Um, And in this case, I did a little bit of both. I just felt that the officer was changing his story on the stand as opposed to what he wrote in the report, which became an issue at trial. I guess what were the big, some of the biggest takeaways on cross-examination that you felt potentially uh, swayed the members of the jury to not find this officer credible? I think it was the fact that there was a couple of inconsistencies between his testimony at trial and what he wrote in the police report, which he had to admit to. And I believe the fact that the officer, like any officer, has the opportunity to um, collect evidence and none was taken in this case. You know, the officer had to admit that he didn't take a sample of the water. He didn't take a sample of what he believed to be 
you know, paper towels inside that water. He didn't get anything tested. And that wasn't very hard for an officer to do if they want to prosecute someone for a misdemeanor. And so I think getting that fact and those points across to the jury made them realize, hey, maybe there could have been a better investigative job done by this officer. And so then after all of the evidence is presented in the case, I know you said that uh, the prosecution gets a chance to go and then you you get a can- chance to go. And, and it's pretty common that, I, I think it's fair to say that it's pretty common that the defense doesn't necessarily uh, always put on a defense because, you know, we don't carry that burden. Um, but I think in, in the rare sense, if I, if I overheard correctly, you actually did put on some evidence in, in this case. Is that correct? That's correct. My witness, uh, my client did decide that he wanted to take the stand and tell, you know, personally explain to the jury how things happened. How do you feel that he did? I know that's, as a defense attorney, one of our biggest fears is, is putting them into the lines then and letting the, the prosecution get a, get a chance to cross-examine them. Yeah, it is. Um, most people have never been a witness in a trial. And so, you know, you're up there and there's 12 jurors all staring at you and the judge and two attorneys and people asking you questions. And all of a sudden the room gets hot and you're thirsty. You know, it's very nerve wracking up there, I can imagine. Um, so it's up to our clients and it is scary when <laughs> your client wants to take the stand and they get nervous or they say the wrong thing and it's used against them. And it's always a struggle with your client deciding whether they're going to take the stand or not. But like everything else in the constitution, that's my client's right. If he wants to take it, you know, take the stand. And in this case, my client was adamant about taking the stand and said, I need to explain it because who knows better than him. Right. And how do you feel that he did on the stand? I think he did great. He was very, he was a very likable guy. And so, you know, he didn't, get nervous. I don't think they were able to shake him up at all. He sat there and he told his truth. You know, he told his story. He explained everything. He, when I felt that he couldn't, um, like I didn't understand, I would make sure that he broke it down for the jury. And he was very good at making it easy for people who didn't have RVs to learn and understand how the process in his particular RV worked. When he was, um, questioned by the prosecutor, you know, he just told him, this is what I think it is. I don't, I'm not saying the officer's lying. I'm just saying he's mistaken. And I think that that's something the jury can connect with. Nobody likes for anyone to call an officer a liar or attack them. And I think he did very good at respecting the officer and his job. You know, Hey, I know he was doing his job, but it was just the wrong call. And I think that gave him a little bit more believability with the jury as well that's awesome I, I know that's definitely one of the challenges and i think in return if, if the client is able to stand strong and do well on the stand that it, i think it normally has some pretty pretty decent benefits and so then after all of the evidence was presented what's more or less the kind of final part of a trial that would be the closing argument, which is honestly the funnest, best part of any trial that I've done. And any attorney I know says the exact same thing. And in this case, how did you feel that the closings went? I, because of the way the evidence came out, I was very confident in my closing. And I think the more confident you go into your closing argument, 
the more passionate you are and the more convincing you are. And I gave the jury the facts, the way they happened, which was our truth, which was the truth. I showed them pictures. I reminded them of the evidence. I reminded them of the inconsistencies in the statements. And I was very confident when I finished my closing argument. So you finished the closing argument. The judge explains all of the rules and the laws to the jury, and he releases them. And they go to jury deliberation. Is that right? That's correct. Um, sometimes juries deliberate from as little as like five to 10 minutes up to like days, obviously, depending on if the case is a misdemeanor or felony. In my particular case, they were out, I believe, a day. Okay. And then they came back with a verdict. And for our listeners out there, what was that verdict? It was a not guilty. My client was fully acquitted. Nice. Congratulations. And so after a, a not guilty happens, what is that the end of the case? Is Are they able to potentially get some other evidence and try again? Or, you know, what what happens with when you finally get that not guilty? They're, they're not able to file again. That's it. That's the final. That is the ultimate decision. My client's fully acquitted of the charges. The arrest is not on his record and the charge will never be on his record. That's fantastic. What a what an amazing result and, and true uh, testament as to what exercising your right to go to trial can actually do and, and accomplish. And so, Jessica, one of the biggest things in this show is that, you know, we, we like to highlight the aspect of, you know, taking it to the box. And it sounds like that that trial story definitely is a great example of that. But, you know, one of the things that I like to ask all my guests is, you know, what is the significance or importance of taking it to the box mean to you? You know, to me, it's it's basically the foundation of this nation. That is, you know, the Constitution and people's rights. And in that Constitution is every person, including me, including the listeners, every person's right to a trial. If you are accused of a crime According to that same constitution, you're innocent, right? You have to be proven guilty. And in order to do that, you have to exercise your right to a trial. That's why all of these constitutional rights come together. And taking it to the box to me means people exercising their constitutional rights. And nothing makes me happier than that. So when, when people decide that they want to exercise their constitutional rights, I'm with it. I'm all for it. I will take it to the box every single time. I feel that for sure. Well, Jessica, thanks so much for coming on our show. We really appreciate you taking the time to ex- share your experience with us, give our members of the jury an inside look of what it means to take something to the box. And, you know, if you get that uh, pleasure to do it again, we'd love to hear a story again in the future. Awesome. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Well, members of the jury, that's our show, and I rest my case. Be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter to the box. If you're a fan of the show, go ahead and subscribe. You can also find us on social media at members of the jury. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback, be sure to email us at lhursty at membersofthejurypod.com. The information in this podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. 
The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws and to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.